0: I'll start at verse 22, but we're not going to be there. So we're continuing with the same theme, and uh, I'm having trouble moving very quickly, uh, and I apologize for that. Uh, I noticed that Chuck Messler uh, is able to plow right through it, but he has an hour and a half for his messages, and I don't think he'd want that. Uh, he, he takes as much time as he wants. So our passage today is really keyed off of this. He said unto his disciples, and the main phrase I wanted you to see is he said unto his disciples, And I believe this passage we're looking at today is still addressed to his disciples. In fact, if you have your Bible open, you will see you're all the way up at verse 54 before he turns to the crowd. Now, this passage is difficult for me because I don't know which part of it applies to his disciples and which part of it applies to all of us. And I suppose that's for the Holy Spirit to interpret as us. Now, the main point here is, therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life. uh, What ye shall eat, neither for the body, what ye shall put on the life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Now, that's the that's the underlying theme of what we're talking about. That our lives are not to be centered on clothes and food. It's not about uh, how big our boat is, or what type of truck we drive, or how nice our house is, or how better, how good our lawn looks. That's not the point of life. God has a purpose for us. I believe, even though we're not all called as apostles, we're not all called as. Uh, one sent out with authority. I do believe very much that every one of us has a calling in life. Now, uh, I, I wanted to introduce this guy. I think some of you know him, but I don't know how many have actually seen him. How many of you have ever heard of George Mueller of the last century in England? So there's a few. Yeah, there's a few of you. Now, how many of you have seen him? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not what you expected, is it? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, of course he's about, obviously he's at least 16 in this picture so uh, he's uh, he's got some age on but uh I was really shocked to find that picture of him on the internet I was yesterday I wanted to use him as an example and I'm trying to go back to what I was taught years ago and I read his biography, oh, I bet 50 years ago, and I'm not sure how much of it I got right, so I pulled this off of the internet, and uh, he lived from 1805 to 1898, and he survived a terrible cholera epidemic in England, and uh, his whole family survived. He got sick, and he had repeating, repeated instances of sickness, but he felt very much that God had brought him through that. He turned his back on his businesses at a young, at a young age, 21, converted to Christianity, and went out, and the story I was told is he went out and sat on his front steps and he thought to himself, now what? You know, I've, I've sold everything that I own and I'm going to sit out here now what do I do? Now he didn't sell his house, he still lived in his home. And uh, it, I'm told that because of the cholera epidemic, there were millions of orphans in England at that time, many of parents died, and there was a little girl there that came up to him and said, I'm hungry. And he said, well, where's your mommy? And she said, he's dead. And she said, where's your daddy? She said, I don't know. He's gone. And he brought her into the house and he and his wife fed her breakfast. And that started a movement, which in the end cared for more than 10,000 orphans. And unbeknownst to me, until I just read it, he and some others co-founded the Plymouth Brethren movement, which is a movement where the ministers are not paid. They simply trust God and the missionaries as well. They simply trust God for their resources. Uh, and which was the hallmark of his life. In the end, it's been estimated, I'm not sure they even know, but they estimated he'd received as much as $23 million for the work of the orphans. And uh, I think he had five children's homes that he'd established in England. Uh, And in all of that, he never asked anyone for support but God. Now, he wanted to put God's Word to the test, and he proved that God keeps His Word. Now, Following that, when I went to seminary, the guy that started my seminary uh, believed the same thing, that he should not make the needs known. So he got in the habit of just telling what he called the Mid-America story, how they got started. They were retired professors from other Southern Baptist colleges that, or seminaries, and they wanted to have a, one school where every professor and every teacher believed in verbal plenary inspiration. In other words, they believed the whole Bible. And uh so he would go out and he would tell that story and people would support him. And when I got there, they were in the process of buying a Jewish uh, temple. The, Jews, the Jewish people had moved out of town to a nicer part of town, built a multi-million dollar chapel and sold their old temple to Mid-America Seminary for $1 million. And they prayed about it, but they didn't make it public. But their hope was that they could move into the seminary, uh, the new building, their new seminary, the old Jewish temple, debt free and as it turned out they did in fact move in debt free the year i got there they moved into that building debt free and uh, it was a great celebration that it was completely paid for it, without asking for money uh, so obviously we're going to be talking about trusting god for our resources trusting god for our lives now last week's i have some subject headings so i just want to bring it back into the context and It goes like this. I have four subject headings for you, and I should have put them up on the screen. I'm sorry I didn't. The first is uh, last week, last week's outline. There's no need to pretend you are something you are not. There's no need, the the subject is hypocrisy. There's no need to pretend you are better than you are. There's no need to pretend you're stronger or, or richer or anything than you are because what you are in God's eyes is more than enough. There's no need to be embarrassed about who you are. You are a direct creation of God. I've often made fun of the fact that I was born with only half an eyebrow. And God solved that problem. I've made fun of myself so much with it, he just took away all my eyebrows. So now I can't even complain about half an eyebrow. Uh, But uh, the fact is, God makes, makes us that way. He, he, he made us the way he, we, we were fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in our mother's womb, the Bible tells us in Psalm 139. We are greatly loved by God. You look in the mirror, you don't like what you see. God looks at your face and He loves what He sees. You are exactly what God intended. You have no, no need to be embarrassed about yourself. And the, the fact remains that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and if you have come forward and confessed Him as your Savior before men, He will proudly confess to His Father that you belong to Him. You do not need to fear. Uh, later on we're going to see a verse. You don't need to fear because it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The second point is we must learn to allow the Holy Spirit to speak through our lives. We must learn His voice. We must learn to sense His urgings and learn to speak because we are His feet We are His hands. We are His voice on this earth. Third, our lives are more than our possessions. Hence the theme today, the theme last week. It's more than what we own. It's more than what we possess. It's more than what we can earn. Our lives are far more valuable than that. Food and clothing are not to be the focus of our lives. And fourth, worrying will not change anything. Jesus made a a speech about, you know, which of you, by worrying, can add anything to your height? You know, you can't change. Worrying changes nothing. All it does is, worrying about tomorrow, all it does is ruin today. You don't, you don't need to fear. Now, George Mueller set out to make a difference. And the thing that he wanted to prove is that you could trust God at his word. And he is one man that successfully proved that God is indeed trustworthy. Now, this is the passage, except I lost my mouth, there it is. This is the passage that I wanted to share with you. Fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You know, Paul elaborates on that. And this is the Ephesians passage that I thought Linda was stealing from me. But uh, as she said, we never talk about what I'm going to talk about or what she's going to talk about. It just happens the way the Holy Spirit leads it. Uh, Years ago, when we first started picking the music, uh, you know, in, in a lot of churches, the pastor or the music director or the, the two of them together will pick out the music and they try to theme it to the sermon. But one of the things I noticed once we started with the audience picking out the music, it was always amazing to me how the audience picked songs that fit in the theme of what I was speaking on. And it was just interesting that the Holy Spirit could coordinate it a whole lot better than I could because he knew all the music, and I only can remember two or three songs. If I had to pick the music, we'd sing the same four songs every Sunday. You don't want that. Now Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Think of that verse. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of His will. Now see, I would like to back up one and emphasize these words and then I'll move forward to fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to make you work for the kingdom. No, that's not what it says. It is the Father's good pleasure to sell you the kingdom. No, it's not. What do you have to do to receive it if He's giving it to you? You simply have to receive it. Salvation is a gift. God chose us, God gives us the kingdom. All we have to do is receive it. The only two requirements to be saved is repentance, which is to see ourselves as fallen sinners and to attempt in our own physical strength to turn from it, to repent of our sins and to believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins. That all, that's all it takes to be a Christian. All you have to do is pray, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. And please allow your son Jesus Death on the cross to be for me. Come into my life, Lord Jesus, and save me. And that's 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 all that's required to become a Christian. It doesn't take a special church. Doesn't take a special baptism. Doesn't take special clothes. It's not required. Anything's not required of you. But then you get down to here. Uh, I wanted to emphasize the word give. I want to end, and now. We're going to get into the subject of how does how does this apply? Uh, the bottom of that. The last verse there says, "For where your treasure is." there will your heart be also. Now, again, back in the beginning, I showed you how he was speaking to his disciples. I believe he still is. Now, from now on, is it from now on? It's at least for the next two pages. Uh, This is me talking, all right? You'll hear different interpretations of this passage, and you're going to have to go to the Lord yourself. Because I, I don't think this is speaking to everyone. I think it's speaking to some of us. All right. So I went to some length at the beginning here to show you back in verse 22 that he was still speaking to his disciples. All right. Now there are people like George Mueller who weren't preachers at the time. They weren't full-time evangelists and yet he took these words seriously. And there are people who read this passage and they, they interpret it as applying to them. Sell that you have. Give alms, provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approaches and neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I believe it's a universal truth that where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. But I believe from the standpoint of this context, it's clearly to his disciples. And most of us have been around long enough to know But those things we really wanted when we were young and we worked hard and we finally got them later become a burden. You know, I really wanted to have a boat. I went to a lot of trouble to build that boat. And now I spend all my time taking care of that stupid boat. Uh, And life is kind of like that. And, And if you're not careful, those things that we wanted will consume every aspect and moment of our lives to where there's no time to serve God. And this is, this is a universal truth. It's true for all of us. If we're not careful, our work will swallow us up. Now, these disciples in particular, which I, I tend to believe this passage is directed particularly at them. These disciples in, in in particular are going to be facing a very difficult life. They're going to uh, live based on the goodness of others. They're going to go from town to town, persecuted, persecuted even by fellow Jews driven from town to town, mistreated and abused, and, and relying entirely on God's goodness and the, the hearts of God's people to care for them. This passage is particularly true for them. But the question that I got stuck, I kind of got stuck on this verse in my study this week. And uh, the, the question that I got stuck on, does Jesus want all of us to sell everything and just trust God? And I'm going to answer in my opinion, I just don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, Clearly, clearly, Jesus recognizes the ownership of private property. I mean, when it came time to use Peter's boat, he asked permission to do it. When when he needed a place to stay at Capernaum, Jesus stayed at Peter's house. So maybe he said this after he moved out of Peter's house. Mm, I don't think so. See, I think the ownership of private property is well recognized and well established in the Bible. He never demanded anyone to give Him anything. He never acted like He deserved a portion of what we own. Now Jesus talked last time about the ravens and how God feeds them. And that's true. It is true. And the, the, also, the, 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 the truth in addition to that is they don't sit in their nests and God delivers bundles of seed to them. Right? So even though God provided for the Ravens. They still had to go to get up and go to work in the morning. Uh, Linda's recently put out a bird feeder, which is, we have a, a part bird dog in our house. I don't know about the wisdom of putting a bird feeder right outside the window of a bird dog's house because our dog is gonna have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> But uh, even, even at that, they, they have to they have to crawl out of bed and fly over to the bird feeder and eat. I mean, it's it's a requirement that you get out and earn what you're getting. You know, even the ravens had to work. Now, Peter, later on in Acts chapter 5, recognizes that Ananias owned the land. He didn't get in trouble because he didn't sell all his land. He got in trouble because he lied about how much land he sold and how much he kept back. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, and this, this I think is the general rule for all of us, whereas sell all that you have and uh, give give alms. Now, back at the beginning, sell all you have and give alms. I don't know what that means. Now, he told a rich man once, said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Or take what you have and give it to the poor. But does this mean sell all that you have and give alms, give it all as alms, or does this mean sell all that you have, give a generous gift to the poor, for the poor, and trust that God will take care of you from there. You know, when we got ready to leave, uh, for that first time when God called me into the ministry, we sold our house and, and closed our business and resigned both of our teaching jobs. And we packed up everything we could pack into a U-Haul and everything that was left behind was either given away, hauled to the dump or sold. And then we gave a generous gift to uh, Billy, the Billy Graham Association at the time. In fact, I mean, it was it, was, it wasn't a lot. It was like five thousand dollars, which was a lot of money for me in 1970. Uh, but uh, I ended up getting a tax audit because of it. Because one year I gave you know I gave nothing to the church, and the next year I gave five thousand dollars, and I had to prove that I actually wrote a check to Billy Graham for it. So I feel like in a way that we we. We followed this verse that's up on that screen. Called of God for the work of God. I think this applies, but I did take a truckload of junk with me. and okay? Most of that stuff was junk, old broken down furniture and beds and beddings and air conditioners for my grandfather and that kind of thing. And I'd like to say, well, yeah, we've trusted God ever since and we have. But the fact is Jesus said, and all these things shall be added unto you. you Put the kingdom of God first and all these other things. Well, ever since we've been in Vermont, all those things have been added to us. And now we couldn't put everything we owned in 10-year walls So we're, we're actually moving in the wrong direction uh, away from. But that's what God planned. God plans to bless us, you know. That Mueller gave up all that he had and began to follow God. By the time he died, he owned five or- orphanages and $22, $23 million in assets. So, however, this applies, it's a spiritual point, not so much the possession of property. At least that's what I believe. So, for those of us called to full time service, I believe this teaching applies literally. But to the rest of us, I believe it applies spiritually. We're told to work, we're told to save, we're told to have something to give to our children. We're told to have something to help the poor with. We're told to help our churches. You can't do all that without working for a living, I hate to tell you. There are some who have held the view that this verse applies literally and absolutely to every believer. But this view has been rejected by the vast majority of Christians over the years. And the people who believe that view... Went up in caves and, and built monasteries and lived by themselves and were actually virtually no use to the kingdom of God. They actually isolated themselves from the world and were no, no longer any valuable, valuable for spreading the kingdom. Some also argue that the communal ownership of property uh, was taught here, but that it was a failure. They'll tell you that uh, see this this idea of sell all you have and you know share it amongst yourselves is what Jesus was teaching. I don't believe that, you know. And some will argue that the reason that the Jerusalem Church was so impoverished, you know, as you read through the Book of Acts, Paul was very intent on collecting money for the church Church of Jerusalem because they're in absolute poverty. And some will argue, depending on who you're listening to, that the reason the church was in the Church of Jerusalem was in such poverty was because they sold everything they had. I don't think they did. That's just my opinion, but I don't think they did. I think the Bible says, as they had need, they sold what they had. I don't think they just went out and said, Oh, I'm going to sell all my property and just give it to the church and the church is going to take care of me. I don't think that's the way it worked. I think when they saw a need, they said, Well, I've got, you know, Ananias goes, I've got five acres on the east side of town. I'll sell that and I'll bring it in and give it to the church. Uh, I think that's the way it works. So I think they were actually self-sufficient until James was killed. And when James was killed and the persecution arose, I think they got kicked out of their jobs, and they got kicked out of their homes, and some of them got kicked out of the cities that they lived in. And now they were refugees, and they truly had nothing. But I don't think it had anything to do with their giving, and I don't think they sold everything and lived in a community. I think they, they stayed in the communities where they were saved. So that's just my interpretation, if you don't mind me adding that in. But this, this has been on my mind uh, for a long time. I don't believe that Jesus is teaching us communal living here. Some will teach that he is. Uh, but I do believe this. When I'm talking about a spiritual application, I do believe that this passage, I take that literally for me, don't get me wrong those called to full-time worker mission work. You, you, can't, you can't have your irons in too many fires, as my dad would say. But the fact is, a lot of the successful missionaries I know have invested in properties, retirement properties in particular, but investment properties all around the world. They're not paupers, and they're not stupid. I remember Dr. Beeman. Dr. Beeman had rental properties all over the United States. And uh, he... He understood the importance of investing. But I do believe that Jesus is teaching us that the kingdom comes first. So I'm a lost person. I'm going through my life working two jobs. I have bought a home. I've got a cabinet shop. I've got a motorcycle. I've got a truck, a car, five boats, an old house that I'm working on working, you know, 18 hours a day, trying to get ahead, you know. And then I got saved. And what does that do? It doesn't change anything. I still have all that stuff. It wasn't a sin to keep all that stuff. The sin would have happened when I put my stuff ahead of the kingdom. So the moment that I'm saved, everything that I have everything that I quote unquote own, I recognize two things. First of all, it came from God. God blessed me with that. And secondly, it belongs to God. So all that stuff of mine, I became a steward of. I was responsible for it. I was responsible to use it for the purpose of the kingdom. And that's what we've attempted to do ever since. Certainly anyone who would desire to put God's kingdom first, which is all of us, right, will find that our focus on money gets in the way of serving God. We see that immediately. We can't spend our lives serving money and God. It's going to be one or the other. We have to have a focus on kingdom work ahead of making money. So in this context, those of us that are not called as international missionaries or apostles. Apostle means one sent out in authority. I mean, in the true sense, I don't believe there are any apostles since the last apostle John died. But in the general sense of the word, there's many times that we've been sent out on a mission. In this context, you know, we have to come to a point to where I recognize everything I have belongs to God and he can call me to give it up and walk away from it at any time. And we become stewards of his resources and our faithfulness as stewards, which means managers of the stuff that God gave us, our, our faithfulness at that is on one of the bases upon which we'll be judged. And to say it another way, I'd like to say to the extent that I am able, to the extent that you are able to let go of material things to the extent that you are able to look to God and turn your back on all that stuff that we like to trust in. To that extent, I'm able to, to trust God for my earthly needs. To that extent, I am effective for God. It will affect, it will reduce, I don't want to use the same word twice, it will reduce our effectiveness for God if we have our focus on money or the acquisition of things. And as I started at the beginning, the more things we have, the more distractions we have, the more labor we have. I, years ago, I heard Dr. Dobson do a speech about putting together a swing set for his one of his children. And he was so excited and he went out there and, you know, he's a doctor. So he had to read the instructions. I could have told him as a carpenter, you don't read the instructions until you have a problem. And if you have leftover parts, chuck them in the trash and don't worry about it. You know, uh, if it doesn't work, then go back and read the instructions. But you know, he can bolt A, goes into hole seven, and put nut four on it. And he did that all day long, he put that thing together. And uh, then the last, the last sentence, the next to the last sentence he said, read, now go back and tighten up every nut on every bolt. And he thought, you've got to be kidding. And he went back and tightened, you know, of course, he's following the instructions, you know, like he was doing heart surgery or something. And he tightens up every, every, every nut on it. And then the last sentence reads, I don't remember, I think it was monthly. Now, once a month, go back and tighten up every bolt and make sure everything fits. And he goes, oh, my God, I bought something that's going to own me for the rest of my life as I try to take care of this stupid swing. You know, it's not like that. But unfortunately, it is too often like that. Paul talks about a similar idea of putting the kingdom first as he talked about the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You know, the Macedonians were suffering terrible persecution at the time and a lot of them couldn't even work. And they were struggling. They were struggling themselves just to survive. And Paul comes along, gets involved, gets involved in starting a church there and they want to support him. So they take up a collection to support the saints at Jerusalem, and Paul commends them by saying, and this they did not as we'd hoped. What he means is, they did it more than they had hoped. And this they did not as we had hoped, but they first gave their own selves to the Lord, and then unto us by the will of God. The point is that everything they had, as little as it was, was available to God. Uh, Brendan is now with the Lord. Uh, He was killed in a terrible accident, but he went to Haiti once as a a young man while they were still in this church. And when he came back, he said, I I don't understand it. He said, said, they have nothing. When he got back, he wanted to collect baseball, soccer balls, and bats, because he was down there. Now, he's a high school graduate at the time. He was down in Haiti playing with kids who had a rock, and a stick. And he said, the amazing thing was how happy they were. He said, I've never been around people that were so happy. And he said, if you wanted something, they'd give you anything. They would would take of what they don't have and they would give it. They had the right heart. It just, he went down there to do something for the Haitians and the Haitians did something for him. That's the point. Because their heart... Was well, right. Now the question is: Is our heart right about our stuff? You know, it's just stuff. It's just stuff. Now, our focus on kingdom-mindedness <clears throat> leads us into this next subject. Uh, as the Holy Spirit takes us from where is your heart at right now? What do you think about all day, every day? What What's worrying you? That shouldn't be worrying you. And what's not worrying you that perhaps should be worrying you. Where, where is your head at? Where is your heart at? And the real question that we're flowing into as I close this passage today is, are you ready? Are you ready? Jesus, in the next verse, let your loins be girded about, which you know the, the, the men in those days wore kind of a dress. It was just a tunic that went all the way down to their feet. And to gird it would be to put on a belt and to pull the back piece of cloth up through their legs and tuck the other piece of cloth so it looked like they were wearing baggy shorts. So that's what it means to have your loins girded. It just means you're free to move more freely than you would be with a tunic on. And ye yourselves uh, let your loins be girded about. Be ready to move is the point. And your lights burning... And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open them to him immediately. Blessed, are, you know, let me back up there man. I want you to see something here. When you read Matthew, and I've, I've taught through Matthew many times. I don't think I've ever taught through Luke. He, he keeps tripping me up. And I, I really just noted this a couple of days ago and I don't remember I give credit to the commentary but I don't remember who pointed it out ye yourselves like in the men that wait for their Lord now Matthew it's ten virgins right that are waiting for the bridegroom to come and five of them have oil and five don't right am I I telling that story right so you get to Luke and he says like in the men that wait for their Lord wait a minute what happened to the virgins did Luke mess this up no this is a different point and ye yourselves, like unto men that wait for their lord when he will return. So the the, the the bride the bridegroom has gone to the wedding feast. The wedding party has happened. The whole thing with the virgins has happened, and now he's returning home with his bride. He's returning home with his bride, right? And these are the servants at home that are waiting for him. So it's not it's not the girls in trouble today. It's the boys that are supposed to be ready for when the lord of the manor returns Now, when he cometh and knocketh they may open to him immediately they're waiting on him blessed are those servants whom the Lord when he cometh shall find watching verily I say unto you he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them now if you know anything about eschatology you realize he's talking about the marriage supper of the lamb he's talking about the celebration after the wedding he's going to come back he's going to go He's going to, the the bridesmaids, they're going to have the big party, and then he's going to return home, and there's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I find this an interesting uh, point. And maybe I'm reading something into it, I'm not supposed to read into it here. Of course, the emphasis of all of this is are you ready for the Lord's return? Doesn't matter whether you're a boy or a girl, whether you had oil in your lamp or not. What matters is. Are you ready? If you're a Christian, are you ready for the Lord's return? But since he's talking about the men, he goes out to get his bride and he comes back. He goes out to the Gentile world to get the church. And then he's going to come back to Israel. And you get this reference. Is Israel going to be ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, maybe I'm reading more into that than I should. I don't know. But if I was a Jew listening to this and I understood the actual practice of a wedding, I would think, where is he going to get this bride? And and when he comes back, who's he coming back to? Well, we know he's going to the Gentile world to get the bride, and he's going to come back. You know, when he comes back, he's not going to come back to Bristol, Vermont. He's going to come back to Jerusalem. And his foot is going to touch down there. Are they going to be ready for him? If he come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them, so blessed be those servants. Well... I think you get my point. The emphasis is on whether you're ready or not. Are you ready? Jesus goes on. Next verse. And this know that if the goodman, that's the guy in charge of the house, which in most cases is my wife. And this know that if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched enough not suffered this house to be broken through. Be ye therefore also ready. Well, the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you think not. You know, we we've you know, as Mary mentioned in the beginning, we all got it in our head because Paul says in the, at the last trump, when Paul talks in what is it, 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound the dead in Christ shall rise and then we will be changed. You know, we're thinking, oh, that's the rapture of the church. Fantastic. It's at the last trump. Well, they blow the trump every year. Uh, they blow it a hundred times. I say I was looking up that hundred while while you were talking. I, I didn't realize where the hundred goes. Because it's been more than a hundred years. They blow it a hundred times, but it's the last trump. That and we don't know if it, we don't know if. Paul was talking about the last trump or if it's just the last time that trumpet's going to blow. you know. So, but, but we like to read into that. We like to think, well, Jesus is coming. But Jesus says it's narrow when we think not. So probably when we've all decided it'll be on Tuesday at what you say, 11 o'clock, it ain't going to happen then because no one's going to know when he's going to come. The point is we need to be ready. Then Peter said unto him, I love this, Peter doesn't know who he's talking to. I like that. Uh, Lord, is this parable for us or is it for everyone? Because He's still speaking to His disciples. Now there's a whole crowd around Him, but His emphasis is on His disciples. And the Lord said, Who then is a faithful and wise steward whom His Lord shall make ruler over His household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom His Lord when He cometh shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that He will make Him ruler over all His house. Let me back up again. And Peter said, who are you talking to? And Jesus says, I'm talking to that servant that's faithful and looking forward to his Lord coming. So to me, he's saying, everybody who believes, that's who I'm talking to. You know, I'm speaking to the faithful ones. To whomever is faithful and wise steward, this message is to the ones that I have given kingdom responsibility to. And if you're a head of a household... If you have a home and children that you're responsible for, if you have a job that you're responsible for, your job is to be faithful to Jesus until he comes. And he said, that person is blessed. Blessed is that servant whom His Lord when he cometh shall find so doing of a truth. I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. doesn't matter what your job is. You know, you think, well, my job doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. It does matter. What you do matters because God gave you that job. And if God didn't give you that job, get out of it. And get to a job that God wants you in. But if you're in a job that God gave you then that job is the work, the kingdom work God gave you to do and you must be faithful in it. And he said, if you're found faithful in those little things, I will make you ruler over all that he hath. Now we believe that after the rapture and after the tribulation, uh, after the second coming, there'll be a thousand years where we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ and I think the basis of this, I will make him rule over all, is based on the jobs that he's going to give us to do in the millennial kingdom. I don't think he's talking about eternity future. I think he's talking about the millennium. But, and if that servant say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming, I'm going to go out and paint my boat, and shall begin to beat the men servants and the maidens. I can't do that in my house. It's only the dog. And to eat and drink and be drunken. You could do that at my house, but we don't drink. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. I don't know if I'm going to pick up on the next verses next week or not. Because there's an interesting twist there, but I didn't want to confuse you with it. So the point is this. Make sure two things. Make sure you're in Christ. Make sure that you have repented of your sins and received Jesus as your Savior. You can do that anytime, anywhere. Make sure He is your Lord and then make sure you're faithful to what He's called you to do. Whether you're teaching Sunday school, cleaning the floors, cooking at a school, whatever your job is. In Linda's case, she's teaching our grandchildren. God wants her to be found faithful. He wants us to be found faithful. Let's pray. Father, my hope is that every single individual here understands this idea of asking Christ into their heart. And I pray that everyone has. I pray that even now, if there's anyone here that has not made Jesus their Lord, and that means their boss, this would be the time where they bow their hearts and say, Lord, forgive me, for I have sinned. Please let Jesus come into my life and lead me. And I will follow him. I will make him my Lord, my boss. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.